0: Welcome to this Outbeat Extra, a continuing celebration of the 50th anniversary of Stonewall with Making Gay History. I'm Greg Moralia. And
1: I'm Eric Marcus, host of the Making Gay History podcast. The June 1969 riots at New York's Stonewall Inn are often described as the start of the modern LGBTQ civil rights movement. But our history as a community and a movement started way before those explosive summer nights 50 years ago. This year on Outbeat Extra, I'm going to share with you some of the archival interviews I recorded with people who changed the world. Their stories and their work are mostly absent from the history books, but they contributed to the movement that got us to where we are today in ways you might know about, but probably don't. And their experiences and recollections take my breath away.
0: We're really excited to be partnering with Eric Marcus in Making Gay History. Eric's an accomplished author with several gay history books and biographies to his credits. He's the founder of MakingGayHistory.com and the Making Gay History podcast. So stay with us. Our first interview of the night is coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio news for this Sunday, December 29th,
2: 2019.
0: This is Greg Moralli with your Outbeat Radio news for the week of December 29th, 2019. As the first decade of the 21st century comes to a close, it's an opportune time to look back at some of the most significant issues impacting the LGBT community from the first 10 years of this century. There's no doubt we saw huge gains, and more recently, huge losses, with the threat of even more loss of civil rights ground coming in the new decade. The gains began in 2003 when the U.S. Supreme Court struck down sodomy laws across the country and decriminalized consensual same-sex relations. Then, in 2009, former President Barack Obama signed the Matthew Shepard James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act into law. This added sexual orientation and gender identity to the list of protected identities in federal law. In 2010, Don't Ask, Don't Tell fell away, paving the way for LGBTQ service members to serve openly. Then three years later, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down most of the Federal Defense of Marriage Act and affirmed California's Proposition 8 to be unconstitutional. This restored marriage equality throughout California. And then finally in 2015, the U.S. Supreme Court stepped up and made marriage equality a reality in every state. But the marriage equality decision didn't remedy all of the inequities, and the tide is definitely turning starting in 2016. All across the country today, battles are being waged against the LGBT community, and many of these fights are in states less progressive than states like California, New York, and Massachusetts. Some of the greatest concerns moving forward include issues like the census. The Trump administration has removed all references to LGBTQ people from the U.S. census, which means it will be impossible to accurately determine the size of the LGBT population. And violence against the LGBT community has been trending upward for the last three years, especially acts directed at transgender women of color. In 2018, the Trump administration enacted a ban on HIV-positive service members with the Deploy or Get Out policy, stating that service members who for any reason cannot be deployed for more than 12 consecutive months will be discharged. The policy affects all HIV-positive military members because of a 1980s policy that barred HIV-positive soldiers from deploying overseas. And workplace discrimination exists still in more than two-thirds of the country, despite the fact that 70 countries around the world protect LGBT workers. In housing, there is still no federal protection for housing discrimination. Only 22 states have laws prohibiting housing discrimination based on sexual orientation, And perhaps the greatest threat is the debate over religious freedom. Some states are already enacting religious freedom laws that will allow churches and businesses to refuse to serve gay people. And as this is our last news segment of the year, I'd like to take a moment to thank our amazing LGBT news partners, including The Advocate, Out Magazine, LGBTQ Nation, and The Bay Area Reporter, for all the work they do all year long. For Outbeat Radio News, I'm Greg Moralia.
1: Hi there, Eric Marcus here. Before we get started, I have a favor to ask. A little favor that could make a big difference to us. It would be great if you could spend a couple of short minutes filling out a survey for us. Learning more about you will help us make the best show possible. And it can help us when we ask funders for the support we need to make this podcast. I'd be so grateful if you could give us a moment of your time and go to makinggayhistory.com slash survey and answer a few questions to help us hone and fund Making Gay History. Got that? makinggayhistory.com slash survey. You're the best. Thanks. I'm Eric Marcus, and this is Making Gay History. If you've heard of Larry Kramer, then his reputation as a passionate activist with high expectations and a short fuse probably precedes him. If you don't know him, Larry is famous for being one of the first civilians to sound the alarm even before AIDS was called AIDS and became a catastrophic worldwide epidemic that has swept away millions of lives. Back in the early 80s, Larry earned more than a few enemies because of his calls for gay men to cool it with their sex lives. Even before the virus that causes AIDS was discovered, it was clear to Larry and many others that it was a sexually transmitted disease. Coming on the heels of 1970s gay liberation and newfound sexual freedom, almost no one wanted to hear an angry middle-aged man tell them that they had to stop having sex, that it was a matter of life and death. Before the AIDS crisis, Larry was best known for his work as a screenwriter and author. He wrote the Oscar-nominated 1969 screenplay for women in love. And he wrote the controversial 1978 novel, Faggots, which pulled back the curtain on a world of promiscuous sex and drug use in New York's post-Stonewall gay subculture. It was AIDS that propelled Larry Kramer into the movement. His friends were dying, and he had to do something. In 1982, he co-founded the Gay Men's Health Crisis, now known as GMHC. Five years later, he co-founded, along with Vito Russo and others, ACT UP, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. ACT UP came to be known for its brilliant use of public protests to bring attention to the epidemic. By early 1989, when I first met Larry, AIDS had taken more than 60,000 lives, most of them gay men. Given all that, I knew Larry was someone I needed to interview, but I wasn't looking forward to it. I only knew Larry from press reports and television appearances, and from what I could see, he had more than earned his reputation as an uncompromising, angry, outspoken firebrand who was unafraid to offend. That's not the Larry Kramer I found on a winter afternoon at his apartment in New York City. I had braced myself for a tornado, and I found a teddy bear. So here's the scene. I'm sitting opposite Larry in his Greenwich Village living room. We're separated by his broad desk in a room that's all white. Out the window, I can see Washington Square Park, and in the distance, the twin towers of the World Trade Center. As I set up my tape recorder and attach the lapel mic to Larry's shirt, we chat about how we both had wanted to find a husband early in life and settle down. And that leads us back in time to Larry's memories as a confused and unhappy college student in the early 1950s. I press record.
2: Interview with Larry Kramer, Thursday, January 26th, 1989 at the home of Larry Kramer in New York City. Interviewer is Eric Marcus, tape one, side one.
3: When I went to Yale, I thought I was the only gay person in the world and, and tried to kill myself because I, it was so lonely. Actually so, did try to kill yourself? Yeah. Uh, what year And was I that, think that, that was, you've... 53 was the year, my freshman year at Yale. Uh, oh, it was awful. I mean, I do you want to go back that far? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm oh. also
2: curious because I was a, a college student on well, 76, desperately unhappy, Where? at Vassar College.
3: Uh, so there, were, there were a lot of gays.
2: There weren't that many. People oh, think there were a lot. Yeah. I always <laughs> said, if there were so many gays, why was I so unhappy? <laughs> uh, yeah. But I was a miserably unhappy person. And, uh, and death seemed very appealing at moments during my freshman year mm-hmm. when I was dating a woman and sneaking off with a man behind you. And life in 53 at Yale must have been much more difficult than 76 at Vassar.
3: I well, mean I mean I don't know if you could even start in in 53 you start I knew I was gay I think from the day I was born and I think that there had been I now know that there were isolate, there were experiences all through before I even got to Yale and they were all covert and and guilt inducing on uh, on everybody's part so uh, the it, it seemed as if All those early years were spent trying to deny these feelings. The feelings would sort of get too strong and erupt, and and I would have an experience, which would always make me feel guilty in one way or another. And then you'd put it, you'd be calm. Vesuvius would calm down for a while, a week, a week or two. And Yale was awful. There was a gay bar called Pirelli's. It was just. Awful the time when I finally had the courage to go there, and, and it was only two blocks from campus, but it was a, a million years away. It was very dark and gray and, and inside and, and smoky and and filled with old old older men and and uh, uh, I only went the once and somebody picked me up in a car and drove for it seemed like hours before we found a place that was quiet to do it and then he drove me back where you didn't say a word all of that
2: how did you try to kill yourself?
3: I ate 200 aspirin
2: oh my god talk <laughs> about slow and miserable death. you must have been pretty miserable to swallow 200 and you must have been even more miserable after did you just you it out? was that
3: who knows it's a scene I'll never forget
2: Uh, The scene of taking the pills or the scene of waking up and finding you're still there?
3: I didn't wake up. I went to to bed and I got scared and I called the campus police and they came and took me to the hospital and pumped my stomach. And I was in a woke... Then I fell asleep and I woke up in a room with bars and uh, at the Grace New Haven Hospital and there was this very unpleasant hospital psychiatrist who said... All right, Mr. Kramer, why did you do it? And I said the well, words to that. He says, "And he said, 'I'm now. You're not going to be let out of this hospital until you tell us why you did it.'" And I said, "I mean, I just had a. He rubbed me the wrong way, and I wouldn't have told him. Who know? Who knew why I did it anyway? So my brother, who's always sort of looked after me, came and got me out, and he was friends with the dean of freshmen. My brother had been to Yale before me, and um, and it was, you know, ordinarily when something like that happened, you were shipped off to go join the army. Really? In those days, yeah. And then you can come back to Yale when you've sort of grown up. But they let me stay if I went to the University of Psychiatrist. His name was Dr. Fry, Clement Fry, and he was about, in the 60s, he had silver hair and he was a good-looking man, he wore his rep tie and his button-down shirt. And uh, you just knew that he cared more about Yale than he ever did about you. And uh, <laughs> and I told him of this experience that I had had of, I had been invited to go to the room of two of my freshman year, two guys freshman year that I had met. Oh, and they somehow mercifully had found each other and they were living in this room and I was invited. For a tea or something, and I walked into this room. And the room—you know how awful freshman year rooms are. Well, they had done their room, and it was painted all black. And there was um, uh, everything had been taken out of the room except, you know, a low mattress which which was black, or and there was a perfect coffee table with with a rose in a vase that was spotlit in it. They, and the, men are born, and possibly. and Mabel Mercer is playing on the phonograph, right? <laughs> So I described this all to Dr. Fry, and Dr. Fry's reaction was, "I don't, I wouldn't see those guys anymore if I were you." <laughs> and that's what Yale was like, and that's what going to a psychiatrist was like. So, um,
2: and there wasn't, there wasn't a local gay student group for you to call.
3: There was not, I mean, I love going back to Yale now. And this is my real yardstick of, of how far we've come, even though I'm always yelling about how we've not come far enough. I go back to Yale, and, and Yale is like the gay college now. And there's a dance every year for uh, you know, well over a 1,000 gay men and women in, in you know, across the campus from where I tried to kill myself because I thought I was the only one. So that is your yardstick for change? It certainly is, yeah. That in 30 years' time,
2: You were completely alone.
3: Thirty years it is. God, it's a long time. So where does that leave us? (laughs) A lot of change and no change. Well, yeah. Well, I guess uh, it's in it's in my nature to be impatient, and uh, I only got politically involved because of AIDS, and. There is no question that we have lost the war to AIDS and that we have lost and will continue to lose a great many people whom we did not have to lose, and that the speed of research, treatment, education, you name it, has been tragically and and inhumanely slow. It's An epidemic that need not have happened, and that we should have listened um, there's no question that, that, that enough people knew what was happening who should have listened Are there a, people
2: specifically who should have listened
3: well, the community i mean the news the gay press, uh, the gay leaders uh, you were there before
2: it was an epidemic or just as it was becoming.
3: Well, I think now we know that even when we found out in in 81, it was much bigger than we thought, but we thought it was just beginning, right? 81, in this very room, in August 81, 80 men sat with Dr. Friedman Keane from NYU who told us in no uncertain terms exactly what was happening. And... uh, and he was right in 81 in august of 81 the new york times article that alerted everybody really was july 3rd 81. the new york times headline was something like rare cancer scene in 41 homosexuals and it said that all the guys had the same history which was the history of of having had all of these sexual diseases, amoebas, hepatitis A and B, and mononucleosis, and syphilis, and gonorrhea, and you name it. When I saw that in the New York Times, I was scared, because I'd had all of that. And uh, I guess a penny dropped, as the English say, or the bell rang, or something. And I called Larry Mass, who was, was and is my friend, who is a doctor and who had written some articles. He wrote a health column for the native. And had written about it before the Times had, and uh, and I guess I'd spoken to him peripherally about it, but not. It had the the, the bell hadn't rung I guess until the I mean the, the Times has a way of making you really sit up and say, "Wow."
2: Well, if the Times covers it, it has to be real.
3: So he said, "Go talk to Alvin, to Dr. Friedman Uh which I did, and uh, Alvin, who turned out to be gay and we turned out to have mutual friends, uh, said, uh, this is what's happening. You gotta stop, you're someone well-known in the gay community. You have to do something about it. Uh, Somebody's gotta go out there and, and tell them. And it was because of that that I invited Larry, Mass, and I and. Two other guys now dead. Uh Donald Crinsman and Paul Rappaport invited uh everyone we knew to come to this first meeting in August. that
2: include people from from political groups, gay political we groups. We got on
3: the phone and we called everybody. We called anyone we could think of. Political people, rich people, media people, doctors, none of whom showed up. Uh and uh it was a good cross section. And uh it was, you know, a lot of people didn't believe him. Did you know this was a hot political f- football when you
2: picked it up? Or did you expect people would oh. respond to you or to what you had to say?
3: You know, that very meeting that night with, with Al- was in the early evening with Alvin. So that, I mean, there were a lot of very nasty questions put to him. There were a lot of people saying, you know, you are a born again. Uh, how can you make all of these assumptions on the basis of so few cases? And how can you expect the whole community to stop you know, there was no virus then. I mean, people say there's no virus now, but there certainly wasn't a virus then, and that didn't come for another couple of years, and people could say you have no evidence to, to base this on, and, and, uh, and... But didn't
2: anyone say, even if there's the slightest possibility?
3: Well, I mean, that's what he was saying, and that's what I was saying, mm-hmm. and, and, uh... It wasn't so much the people that Paul Popham and Nathan Fain, who came to be my big adversaries in gay men's health crisis, it wasn't so much that they didn't believe or not believe what was happening. Paul had, of course, lost a couple of friends by then and a lover. Um, it was that he didn't think it was GMHCs or anybody's position to tell anybody else how to live their lives and that people had to make up their own minds. So a lot of valuable time was lost not being the conduit i thought i was setting up or finding to help set up with others an organization that was going to do one thing and that organization became and still is another what was it so, what it was, was it set to... up to spread information and to fight to fight to make the system accountable and to spread with the word of what was happening and that you know we got to cool it it was not that at all it was it became very quickly it was taken over by the social workers, and, and, and it is now what it is then. It's, it's a social service and a very good social service organization. But, it again, that's our tragedy. Uh, it's an organization that, that helps people to die. It is not an organization that helps the living go on living. And we still don't have an organization to do that, you know, except maybe ACT UP, um, which came along much too late. Uh, better late than never, but much too late. I blame myself i I am very uh cognizant of of a great failing on my part that i was did not have the ability to be a leader that I did not have the ability to deal with my adversaries and still be friends god didn't if there is a god did not give the gay community a leader when the gay community needed a leader. And you, Still failed hasn't. In,
2: and you failed in that role.
3: And I failed in that role. I feel very strongly I failed in that role.
2: What does the future hold then?
3: I think AIDS is going to get much, much, much worse and a lot more people are going to die and I, I hope that one of these drugs is going to do something about it, but um, I never seem to hear of any let up in the number of people mm-hmm. who seem to be getting sick and that's very scary. And uh, I'm HIV positive myself, which I've just discovered. And
2: uh, you just were tested the first time
3: for the first time. Yeah, mm-hmm. I you know for the first time it's it's come home to me in an even more personal way that my days may be numbered, in a way that I didn't think of before, um, and that's made me real sad more than angry. I find myself going back to ACT UP, which I haven't done in a long time, because I got fed up with it. Uh, Well,
2: there must be a renewed personal, there's a greater personal uh, interest than before, I would think.
3: Their fighting takes me out of my negativity, Mm -hmm. makes me, makes me just sort of being touched by their positivism, helps me.
2: There are a lot of things I haven't asked you, is there anything that that you... uh, would like to comment on. And
3: that's it. I, I don't feel like I've been at my best today with you, and uh, so i will f- come back. Feel a little specious and what—not specious. Feel a little uh, scattered. buck scattered in what I've said. So I don't know if I've said what I. I love being gay, and if I have been, and am critical, it's only because I think. We are very special people and capable of so much more. And, and it's taken me a long time to be able to, to say that because I'm of a different generation than many, you know.
1: You were born what year?
3: Uh, 35. Mm-hmm. And I'm the generation that was sent off to Shrinks because Shrinks then thought they could change you and you were expected to change and it took a long time for me to come to terms with my homosexuality and a lot of shrinks. Um, now, having come to terms with it and liking it and then having to face AIDS is is almost like a bum rap. Uh, nevertheless, it's, uh, you know, I think we are very lucky. I just, I, th- I think, being a gay man, even today, with AIDS, is, is, is a wonderful thing. I love being gay.
1: After I turned off my tape recorder, Larry Kramer and I talked about his health, which hadn't been great. Besides being HIV positive, two-thirds of his liver had been destroyed by the hepatitis B virus. His doctor told him that he had maybe three years to live. But Larry is still alive today. Experimental drugs and a liver transplant in 2001 saved his life. Larry also got his wish to find a husband, settling down with David Webster in 1991. They married on July 24, 2013. Larry and I talked about how he'd like to be remembered. He told me that he sees his work like the landmark play The Normal Heart as his legacy, but at the risk of disagreeing with Larry... I think his biggest legacy was saving lives through the activism he inspired and his warnings about AIDS, which were heard by more than a few of us, including me. A lot of us owe our lives to Larry Kramer. Right after I signed a contract to write my book, Making Gay History, I made a list. It was the late fall of 1988. AIDS was burning through a generation of gay men Tens of thousands were dead, thousands more were infected, many of them already sick. And that included some of the people I wanted to interview. Time was not on my side. At the top of my list was Vito Russo. He was a co-founder of ACT UP, a group committed to ending the AIDS crisis. And he was also one of the founders of GLAAD, an organization that challenged how gay people were represented in the media. Vito was also a brilliant film buff, who wrote The Celluloid Closet. It was a landmark book on the history of how gay people were portrayed in film. So I called Vito and made an appointment to interview him at his apartment in the Chelsea neighborhood of Manhattan. Coincidentally, he lived right around the corner from the health clinic where I'd just gotten my first HIV test. I was 29, and during the three weeks it took to get the test results, I celebrated my 30th birthday. If the results came back positive, you knew you were a dead man. Back then, the treatments were primitive— At best, they'd buy you a little time. If you were negative, well, I was hoping for the best, but, as usual, expecting the worst. My deal with God, and I really wasn't a believer, but I had a deal. And the deal was to just let me live long enough to get this book done, to leave something meaningful behind. Turned out that I was one of the lucky ones, that I'd have time to tell our stories. But Vito's time was running out. So here's the scene. It's the first day of winter in 1988, where in Vito's skinny home office, film canisters and books line the exposed brick walls right up to the high ceiling. Vito is gaunt. And even if I didn't know, I can tell he's sick, and that he's been sick for a long time. But there's determination in his voice to tell his story and to live. I clip the microphone to Vito's pressed shirt. He lights a cigarette, draws on it deeply, and exhales slowly, blowing the smoke above our heads. I hold my breath for a moment and press record.
2: Interview with Vito Russo, Wednesday, December 21st, 1988. Location is Vito Russo's home in New York City. Interviewer is Eric Marcus. Tape one, side one. Do you remember the first time you saw a film... In which gay characters were portrayed?
4: Yeah, Advising Consent in 1962, I was in high school. I was horrified Don Murray had to slit his throat. I mean, he commits suicide at the end only because he's accused of being gay. He's not even gay. Uh, He had one homosexual experience in the army and was being blackmailed, but now he had a wife and a kid. I remember being tremendously impressed and warned by this movie that these kind of people kill themselves. A few months later, I saw a film called Victim, which had been released in England in 1961 and it starred Dirk Bogarde. It's exactly the opposite, where the guy didn't slit his throat. Instead, he tracked down the blackmailers and cooperated with the police and put them in jail, all to challenge the existing laws against homosexual behavior, which is a tremendous thing for uh, a movie to say in 1961. What was going on in your own life in 1961, do you recall? I was in high school. Uh-huh.
2: Did you know when you saw that movie that that
4: it was wrong, that what they were saying was wrong? Yes. You know, that's interesting that you would ask that question because this has always surprised me too. I went to Catholic schools. I went to Catholic grammar school and Catholic high school. With all my Catholic religious education and with all the stuff, you know, in the movies telling you it was wrong, for some reason that this was not wrong and that if something so natural to who I was could be, that it had to be okay and that I was right and that they were wrong but that they were going to beat me up for it so I had to keep my mouth shut. It wasn't like in high school I didn't know any gay kids. There were drag queens in town who used to have parties and we would sneak off and go to their parties and they picked me up one night to go to the beach. We were going to go to Seaside Heights and stay over. I must have been a junior or a senior in high school, 16,
2: 17.
4: I remember we got on the Long Island Expressway and I said, we're not going to Jersey. And he said, no, Mary, we're going to Fire Island. And I had never heard of Fire Island. And it was like a total revelation to me that there was this gay community out there.
2: Do you remember anything about the movement at that time? Was there anything publicly uh, that you knew? The only
4: thing I knew was I picked up magazines like One. And I got the sense that there were people out there who were making a case for gay people uh, saying that, it was, that they shouldn't be persecuted. And I always thought it was sort of odd and fanciful and I never really related it to my life or my needs, but I didn't act upon anything political in my life until after Stonewall.
2: Do you recall Stonewall? Do you recall reading about it?
4: I was there, but I wasn't inside. I was outside. By the time I got there, it was basically over. I went across the street to the park. There's that little triangular park. And I sat in a tree. You were primarily an observer? Yes. I had no connection or knowledge that there was, in fact, the beginnings of an activist movement going on right around that issue. It wasn't until maybe a few months later. Maybe it wasn't, maybe it was just July. And there was a bar on 10th Street in a basement called a snake pit. They raided the snake pit. Among the customers arrested was an Argentinian national, and Diego Vinales was here on a visa, and he was afraid that if it came out that he was gay, he would be deported. And he jumped from the second floor of the police station window on 10th Street to try to escape and landed on a spike fence. And they had to bring acetylene torches to cut him off, and he was brought to St. Vincent's Hospital in critical condition, at the edge of death for like three days. He eventually lived, by the way, and went back to Argentina. I was on my way home from work, and I passed St. Vincent's. There was a candlelight vigil, and I remember being handed a leaflet. And the leaflet said, no matter how you look at it, Diego Vinales was pushed. And that's when I put two and two together, when I realized the political impact of a social event that in fact he was pushed from that window. He was pushed by society. That if he didn't have to be so scared of being deported, he wouldn't have jumped. And so for the first time the organized response reached me on a gut level. And that was the following Thursday when I went to my first Gay Activist Alliance meeting.
2: So then you were involved in activist activities through the early 70s?
4: What was happening by 1971, 72, 73 was that I was in graduate school in cinema Getting a master's in film. Uh, At the same time, I was working days at the film department at the Museum of Modern Art, and I was heavily involved with the Gay Activist Alliance. So, those three facts sort of conspired to make me realize that I wanted to write a, a readable, accessible book about the history of the ways in which lesbians and gay men have been portrayed on the screen, especially in mainstream movies, which reach most people, because I felt that our image was at the root of homophobia, that people were being taught that homo- things about us as gay people that simply weren't true, and they were being taught this by the mass media, by movies, by whatever, and that if I could address that, that, that would be what I could do to help.
2: What was the reaction when the book was published?
4: I heard comments from people in Hollywood who say, you know, this is a very important book because what you've done here is you've illuminated the ways in which we have not dealt with this subject or dealt with it, whatever. And I wonder often, I mean, I have no way of perceiving whether or not the book did any good in terms of its actual impact on movies because I still see most mainstream Hollywood films as virulently homophobic. History has brought us to a point where AIDS suddenly intervened and AIDS has thrown a monkey wrench into any progress that Hollywood was making in the 70s. And, and now people are just, A, scared to deal with the subject at all, or B, homophobic in the extreme. You just can't go to a movie in which they don't slip in some fag joke. I mean, a great film could be made about the tragedy and the drama and the courage of this community in the face of a fatal disease. In my life, I've never seen such courage. The way people are bearing up, losing their friends. I mean, there's a story there. There's a movie there. There are many, there are movies. many movies. There They don't want to make them. You know, because it's yet not happening to the real people, the general public, the heterosexuals.
2: Um, when did you become aware of the issue of AIDS? And I like to talk about you personally. It's affected you quite dramatically. Yeah. Um, and
4: if I steer into ter- territory that you don't want to talk about. No, you, there's no problem with Um In retrospect, now that we all look back on it, uh, because of probably geography and politics, I was, and my friends, probably knew about AIDS before most people in the country because of where we are placed. There were a group of people who knew each other from Fire Island, I had met a guy named Nick Rock. We'd play cards occasionally, and, like myself, was a collector of films. Nick was probably the first person I knew who died of AIDS, but we didn't know that that's what the disease was at the time. I mean, it was only 1979. We were told that Nick died of cat scratch fever, which does not kill you. You know, it was just not possible. The fact of the matter was that he had no immune system, mm-hmm. so he did die of cat scratch fever. It was about 82 or 83 when I really, the bulk of the bad news came to us. And then my boyfriend got sick. And that was sort of the beginning of an even more intimate involvement for me. Because that was 84. It was 84, 85, I guess. Um, Jeffrey got sick and wanted very much to be in San Francisco. Jeffrey uh, Jeffrey grew up in Pittsburgh went to San Francisco State and loved San Francisco and didn't want to leave there. And our relationship, we moved together for five years. We moved back and forth. When Jeffrey got sick, he wanted to choose to be sick in San Francisco. And so I got a job at the San Francisco AIDS Foundation, and uh, I lived in San Francisco with Jeff. Jeffrey was sick for a long time, a year and a half. I didn't know what to do to save him. You know, when you love somebody you always feel like they're not going to die as long as you're with them, you know? That's true. I mean, if you stay with them and you take care of them, that they won't die. And I really felt like, you know, against all rational truth, I could save them. Jeffrey became, at the end, very unmanageable, emotionally and psychologically. He was very difficult to live with. And I was sick myself. And so it became a constant battle of how much stress I could put myself under taking care of him because I was ill. And eventually uh, I had to go to Australia. I was booked to do a lecture at a gay film festival. I was on my way home. They couldn't reach me. I was en route from Melbourne to Honolulu. They didn't know where to reach me. He was dying. He was in San Francisco General. And I couldn't get a flight out of Honolulu for 24 hours. There was no space. And when I arrived in San Francisco, he had died the night before. The last time I saw Jeff, he was in a drawer at the morgue, and they opened it up, and they showed me him, and I spent a few minutes with him, and I held his hand and said goodbye to him. You know, I was devastated by the fact, A, that I wasn't with him, you know, and couldn't reach him, and didn't see him before he died. And also, and I miss him terribly. I mean, just terribly. He's been gone almost three years now, and I'm still sick, I'm very lonely. You know, it's hard to live alone and be sick alone, and as many of your friends as you have, and I have good, loving friends and a great support system, people cannot be sick for you, and they can't suffer for you, and they can't be with you all the time. Jeff had you during the time he was ill, but you, and he did have someone full-time. Yeah, yeah. I took him to the hospital, and I took him to the doctor, and I fed him, and I cooked. I mean, I I did what I wanted to do, but then Jeffrey was gone, and I was alone. And you get in the cab by yourself. And and there was nobody to take care of me. Who the hell is going to get into a relationship with somebody who is probably going to die soon? You know, they don't want to put themselves through that. Most of the people who are my friends are dead. Most of my friends are dead. And at this age, that shouldn't be. You're only 42. Yeah. yeah. It's not natural. No. By any definition of the word natural, it's not natural at this age for me to have lost most of the people I love.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: And so you draw yourself into politics.
2: The images I've seen of you in the last couple of years, well, I've seen you on television, mm-hmm. I've seen you in a very, very activist role. Yes. So it been a- has been—has it been age then that's propelled? <coughs> yeah, you it has.
4: Mm-hmm. I was... Uh, one of the people, along with Larry Kramer and Vivian Shapiro and Tim Sweeney and a couple other people who founded ACT UP, which became a whole new phase of activism, not only for me, but for the community in general. And it's a new kind of activism because it's created a coalition which we were never able to achieve in the 70s. The ACT UP is composed of gay people and straight people, women and men, black and white, you know, and effectively, ACT UP has been a very interesting experience because all these people have one thing in common and that's they want to put an end to the AIDS crisis when by you know, any means possible. How do you see your role in, in ACT UP in the future? Uh... It's difficult to say because um, at this point my priority is my survival and my health and very often I have to take long hiatuses from ACT UP because it's emotionally and physically exhausting for a person with AIDS to go out there in the streets at 7 a.m. in the freezing cold and block traffic. It's really just, you get sick from it. I feel like my function and my role right now is, A, to survive physically, to survive this disease, to be one of the people who survives this disease. I would like that very much, obviously. I mean, nobody wants to die. But also I want to be around to kick their asses after it's over. To say I live through it. You know, to be alive, to witness what happened, to tell the world what happened so that people will realize what we all went through. Because I think our lives have been devalued. These are brave, courageous, beautiful people who are dying.
2: Vito, is there anything I haven't asked you that you'd like to comment on? Well, Any event, thought, place, time, people?
4: I find it interesting, from what I know about the, uh, the history of the gay movement, that there always have been and there will always be people who are willing to put their lives on the line for these ideas. Starting from Germany in the turn of the century in 1895 around and then into the early teens and twenties, there were a group of people in Germany headed by Magnus Hirschfeld who were willing to put their lives on the line. They were willing to make a movie called Different from the Others, which the Nazis seized and burned. That in the 1940s and the 1950s, there were the Harry Hayes and the Barbara Giddings and the Mattachine Society. And then in the 60s, gay liberation. It's the more radical issues that I think are still gonna be fought over. Whether gay people have a right to adopt children, get married, get married, teach in the public schools, which they do now, you know. But be open about it right. and those battles are battles that are going to be fought long after you and I are gone but you have to make a contribution while you're here I mean that's been my whole life is to leave my book behind that I know after I'm dead that book is going to be on a shelf someplace and what I have to say will reach people and the things I've written you know because it's like what's it, who was the person who said that Pedro Almodovar he said the thing is is you can't regret your life, otherwise why did you live? What was the point of having a life if you didn't say something or do something that was going to survive after you're gone? Mm-hmm. And that's the way I feel about it. I mean, I really feel the reason why I'm here is so that I could leave this book and these articles so that some 16-year-old kid who's going to be a gay activist in the next 10 or 15 years is going to read them and take carry the ball from there. And that'll happen happened with me. Mm -hmm. Harry Hay passed the ball to the Mattachine, and they passed the ball to us. And you'll pass it on.
1: Back in 1981, I had been one of those young people who found Vito's book on a shelf. I was a year out of college and working as a temp at Harper & Row. They'd just published The Celluloid Closet. It had a silvery jacket and a subtitle that caught my eye homosexuality in the movies. I wasn't in the closet back then, but I wasn't exactly out either, so I waited until lunch hour when no one was around, and I picked up the book. I couldn't put it down. Vito opened my eyes. I had no idea how much the movies had shaped how I thought of myself and how the rest of the world thought of people like me. It was insidious and really infuriating. Seven years later, Rick Cott, a young gay editor at Harper & Row, commissioned me to write Making Gay History. I wonder now how much Vito's work influenced my own. One thing's for sure, he inspired me to ask a lot of questions. I saw Vito twice after that first interview. The last time was a month before he died. I went by his apartment to go over photos with him for his chapter of the book, including my favorite, a photo of Vito and Bette Midler from the Gay Pride rally in 1973. You can see that photo and read the story behind it at MakingGayHistory.com. Vito Russo died on November 7, 1990. He was 44 years old. He outlived his boyfriend, Jeff Sevick, by four years. Hi, Eric Marcus here with the Making Gay History podcast. Each week we take a deep dive into my stack of decades-old audio cassettes to share with you the voices of LGBTQ history. In our first episode, you'll meet Sylvia Rivera. She was an iconic trans activist who also happened to be at Stonewall in 1969, June 28th, the night of the big uprising. I'll never forget seeing Sylvia for the first time. I was standing in the entry hall of her tenement building in a small river town in New York. And she was standing at the top of a rickety staircase in the glare of a bare light bulb. She had these really strong features, high cheekbones, wide-spaced eyes— gap tooth smile. She was wearing red lipstick. She was wearing this outfit that my sister would have worn in the 1970s if she'd had the guts. It was a black halter top tied at the waist over a skin-tight black undershirt and hot pink spandex pants tucked into beige knee-high boots with chunky heels. And I don't know if it was the combination of her face, her makeup, her hair, or her outfit, or the light. I was wearing an orange down parka And green corduroys, and I looked like I'd stepped off the F train from Queens, which is where I'm from. So I caught my breath, climbed the stairs, and Sylvia welcomed me into her steamy kitchen. The windows were all fogged. She introduced me to her boyfriend, who was the most nondescript guy you can imagine, especially next to Sylvia. And sitting in a chair off to the side was her friend Rennie, who was Sylvia's butch opposite. Flat top haircut, lumberjack shirt, overalls, work boots... A pot of chili was cooking on the stove. There was a bottle of vodka on the table that was almost empty. I don't remember now if she offered me a drink or not, but I have what I call Jewish liver syndrome, and a teaspoon of vodka would leave me on the floor. Not Sylvia. So I got myself situated. I clipped the microphone onto Sylvia's halter top, and I set my recorder to record. Now, on this tape, you'll hear me call Sylvia Ray, which was the name she was going by at the time.
2: Interview with Ray Rivera, Saturday, December 9th, 1989, at 4 p.m. Location is the home of Ray Rivera in Tarrytown, New York. Interviewer is Eric Marcus. Tape one, side one.
5: The Stonewall wasn't a bar for drag queens. Everybody keeps saying it was. So this is where I get into arguments with people. They say, oh, no, it's always a drag queen bar, and it was a black bar. No. Washington Square Bar mm-hmm. was the drag queen bar. Okay, you could get into the Stonewall if they knew you. And there were only a certain amount of drag queens that were allowed into the Stonewall at that time. We had just come back in from um, from Washington, my first lover and I. We were passing Bad. forged checks okay. and whatnot, but we were making good money. I said, so, well let's go to Stonewall. Let's do our thing. Let's go there, you know. Actually it was the first time that I had even been to freaking Stonewall. I wasn't full drag, I was dressed, you know, very pleasantly. I was wearing a woman's suit. Bell bottoms were out then I had made this fabulous suit at home. And I was wearing that and I had the hair out. Lots of makeup, lots of hair. <laughs>
2: Were you drinking at the bar or just standing around? No, I
5: was drinking. The police came in. They came in to get the pay off, as usual. They would come in, padlock the freaking door. As Soon as they left, the mafia was there, cut in the door, they had a new register, they had more money, and they had more booze. This is what we learned to live with mm-hmm. at that time. We had to live with it. Right. We had to live with it, until that day. I don't know if it was the customers or it was the police. It just, everything clicked. Are we doing all this for? The people at the bars, especially at Stonewall, were involved in other movements and everybody just like, all right, we gotta do our thing, we're gonna go for it. and. When they ushered us out, it was nice, you know, when they just very nicely put you out the door, and then you're standing across the street and shut in the square park. And, but why? But why? All of a sudden, you just feel this. Everybody's looking at each other. But why do we have to keep on constantly putting up with this? And the nickels, the dimes, the pennies, and the quarters, started flying. Why?
2: why? Why that? Why do people do that? The payoff.
5: That... that was the payoff. Oh, 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 That was the payoff.
2: It was to symbolize the payoff.
5: Yep. You already got...
2: Here's some more?
5: And here's some more. To be there, you know, it's just like, oh, it's so beautiful. I just like, you know, it's like... Was it exciting? Oh, it was so exciting. It was like, ow, oh, we're doing it. We're doing it. We're... Tra- we're... Their nerves. The cops were, you know, they, they just panicked. Inspector Pine really panicked. Mm-hmm. He really did. Mm-hmm. Plus, he had no backup. Mm-hmm. He did not expect any of the retaliation that the gay community gave him mm-hmm. at that point.
2: Do you think all this was in, in part
5: because people were so angry for so long? People were very angry for so long. I mean, how long can you live in a closet? I was already out of my closet. When you're obvious back then, there was nothing to hold you back. It was always the effeminate male or the butch woman. That's what society always looked like. We are the ones that went out there and we didn't take from, from them. We'd had nothing to lose. Actually, you know, at that at that point in time, you know, I understand the ones that held their heads down low because they probably had very nice jobs and they had a family to go to. I was born to be an effeminate child. My grandmother used to come home and find me all dressed stuff. It's just like of course, you know, well, we don't do this. You're one of the boys. I want you to be a, a mechanic. Uh-huh. I said, no, but I want to be a hairdresser. <laughs> I want to do this. <laughs> and I want to wear these clothes. And I was born July 2nd, 1951, at 2.30 in the morning, in a taxi cab, in the old Lincoln Hospital parking lot. The old queen couldn't wait. <laughs> she says, oh, I'm ready to hit the streets. My grandmother used to always joke about that. I said, yeah. I said, you see why I'm always standing out on the street corner? <laughs> That's good. Cool. And then I was came out feet first. You
2: did? Yes. Oh, so you landed on uh mm, my So I was
5: ready. I always mention my grandmother because my, my mother died when I was three years mm-hmm. old. And she raised me. Mm-hmm. So it's my grandmother that raised me until I left home.
2: Right. So you left home at 10?
5: Yeah. I left home about ten, ten and a half. 10 and That was almost 11. You know, the only reason that I left home at such an early age was because my grandmother came home crying one day. With the tears in her eyes, they're calling you a pato, which means faggot in the Spanish language. And it, it, it hurt her so bad because they were doing this to me. And she knew where I was coming from. She even knew. I had that much respect for my grandmother. But I, 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 didn't, I, didn't I didn't want her to suffer. It wasn't my suffering. I was worrying about her suffering. How did you survive the became a street walker. You stand down in the street and you make money. At that age? That, at that age, it was easy to make money. <laughs> I don't know how many times my grandmother had to come and bail me out of jail. She was there. She always came, bailed me out. She says, oh, that's my grandson. I have to take him out. What were you in jail for? Prostitution, you know, kid laundering. Nothing major, you know. If you walked down 42nd Street and even looked like a faggot, you were going to jail. So you went to jail a few times? Oh, I went to jail a lot of times. The community is always embarrassed by drag queens. Why do you think? Why do I think? No, it's not why I think I know. Okay, why do you know? Because straight society always looks, oh, well, a faggot always dresses in drag or he's too effeminate. You got to be who you are. Mm -hmm. Passing is like saying a light-skinned black woman or black male passing for white. And I refuse to pass. You couldn't have passed? No, I so couldn't have passed. Not in this lifetime. No, not in this lifetime. No, I just like being myself. Right. It's fun being Sylvia. It's fun playing the game.
1: I hope you've enjoyed hearing some of the people who are part of the Making Gay History archive. We have dozens more interviews, which you can listen to on our website. And we're working on a new season of episodes focusing on the Stonewall Uprising. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss a single episode You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or just go to MakingGayHistory.com.
0: Thanks so much, Eric. It was just an honor to work with you this last year. And this is our fourth and final special show celebrating the 50th anniversary of Stonewall with MakingGayHistory.com and acclaimed author Eric Marcus. I have such respect for Eric, his interviews, and his writing. I hope you'll take some time to take Eric up on his invitation to visit MakingGayHistory.com and to listen to some of the hundreds of interviews he has online available for free. And as we wrap up our final show of 2019 and the first decade of the 21st century, on behalf of the entire OutBeat Radio team, I wish you a very happy new year. We wish you peace, good health, and much happiness in the coming decade. Have a great week, and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. Support for OutBeat Radio on KRCBFM comes from listeners and from St. Joseph Health, Northern California, a not-for-profit committed to delivering safe, high-quality clinical care for everyone in our community. St. Joseph Health is grateful for the over 5,000 caregivers across Northern California who make this possible. Learn more at stjhs.org. And from The Bohemian, announcing its annual Best of Sonoma and Napa Readers Poll, the Bohemian publishes the North Bay's longest-running best-of contest and owes it all to you, the reader. Information and voting online at bohemian.com through December 31st. Tune in next Sunday night for Outbeat Radio's Living Proof with Sheridan Gold and Dr. Diana Grayer. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on Radio 91, KRCB-FM Windsor and K215CQ Santa Rosa, a service of Northern California Public Media. You can learn more at norcalpublicmedia.org. It's just before 9 p.m. Stay with us. Afropop is next.